I don't know which party my wife belongs to, but uh, she belongs to my kitchen and my living room and the other room. Hello guys, welcome back to another episode of The Other Room with me, Abby and Kes. Hi Kes. Hi Abby, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm also well, thanks. <laughs> it's just a bit too hot here right now, but... <laughs> hey, it's, it's actually cooler. <laughs> You're lucky it's cooler really? than normal. <laughs> yes, Jesus. we're the cooler. We're getting into the cooler oh months God. now, or at least with the rain and stuff. Oh my <laughs> I cannot do. Okay. <laughs> so, for today's icebreaker, what's one place you have no interest in traveling to? Straight up North Korea. Oh, wow. <laughs> Do you know I would actually love to visit because oh they have God, interesting really? like old architecture and shit like that. And it'll be fun to see. I mean, the only thing will be that I think you have to not take photos and stuff like that. They are very strict about those things. So if you just follow the rules, you'll be fine. Do they even accept visitors tourists? Tourists? Yes, they do. No. No, yes. No. I would love to visit South Korea, <laughs> but not North Korea. No. Oh, really? Because funny enough, for me, the only country that I really, really have like a visceral rejection towards like the thoughts of visiting is the US. Like, I just can't do it. I feel like my soul would hate it there as soon as I land and... <laughs> Yeah, it's just too much negativity. I cannot do. <laughs> so that that's going to be it for me. I can I can probably tolerate it anything else anywhere else except that country. Except the US. But for some reason though, I really really want to see New Orleans. Oh. So it's kind of like, yeah. hmm, maybe I'll yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who knows yeah. but you've been there how is yeah, it I actually want to do um, the Essence yes um, festival yes in oh summer. my god that would be so good not New Orleans yes I, I'm i gonna try and yeah. do that but yeah, yeah we should definitely do Essence let's get our money up kids yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll meet you there hey you meet me no I have to go you have to sponsor me <laughs> Please. <laughs> Sponsor. Yes. I'm yes. not at the sugar mommy level yet, please. Oh, come on now. <laughs> okay, guys. <laughs> Let's go into the next segment for today. What's popping? Um so during the week, uh, there was this expose about Flutterwave, the CEO, GB, uh being fraudulence or shady with his dealings inside the, some insider trading um not being transparent with his former employees access bank while he was still working on flatter wave um also the bit on sexual harassment and pretty much abuse of power and i think just for what's popping that's the part i would want to touch on the inappropriate relationships he had with his colleagues um or his employees instead not colleagues and when it came out uh, at a point there's this recording in the expose where he was kind of being defensive about it like going towards the angle of well they are all adults so it was consensual and blah 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 and i'm like bruh so long as you are in the top top position there there's a power (laughs) play going on you get like you can't argue that you are all adults and so it's consensual like obvious romance on its own is sketchy then between a superior and a subordinate did you see the expose did you 
catch up with the story? Uh, no, I. Oh wow! Okay. I had seen um <laughs> quite a few. <laughs> I have seen quite a few tweets, but I haven't. Mm-hmm. I didn't actually read the actual um article that the David guy put up. No, mm-hmm. but um I did see a few tweets and stuff, and I didn't want to get into it. Like it's it's very typical African man mentality like mm. as soon as they're in a, um, a position of power that's it they think they can do whatever it is that they want and they can get away with whatever it is and mm. also because normally or in our culture or i guess in this side of the world we don't really expect a woman to speak up we don't really expect employees or subordinates mm. to speak up so they can get away with whatever it is that they do and I'm really not surprised. I feel like I won't be surprised if I hear this about any other company, big company doing like big things, you know. But yeah, hmm. I'm really not surprised. It's rather unfortunate. Yeah. Like even if they they expect you to speak up at some point, they know that they can always intimidate with like yeah. the power they have. So it, like there was this lady who she has her case was not even about sexual harassment but it was about the gb guy trying to short change her on her vested stock options like um cutting out what she had to the value of it um and going to her lawyer to then um have them represent flatter waves so then they can't represent her instead and i was like that is horrible like why would you even do yeah. that you get proper intimidation and shit like why if you're clean you're clean like do business all right just why do you have to be messy like that and i'm just uh i i would have expected that he would have resigned by now but so far i've not seen any resignation news or anything like that from him <laughs> africans don't have shame or they don't have shame sadly sadly <laughs> Yeah, anyway, guys, I don't know, man. If if you're out there listening and you're in any type of situation with any boss, any superior, any manager, team lead, and it's just... Please, I beg, speak up. If you can't, go to HR or something like... Share with someone you can trust Ish. Find a way to navigate the situation because it's... Yeah. Uh, these men are not ethical at all. And... Yeah. Um, and for the Sizzler today, we are going to have a conversation with Dr. Anima Ajipon, who is on the faculty at the University of Cincinnati as an assistant professor of women's gender and sexuality studies. They research, write, and teach about identity, culture, and social change, and are particularly interested in how cultural struggles can bring about social transformation. Enima is the author of Afropolitan Projects, Redefining Blackness, Sexuality, and Culture from Houston to Accra. They are currently working on a project about women's football, gendered nationalism, and state-sponsored homophobia in Ghana. Hi, Enima. Welcome to the show. Hi. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Hi. Yes. So um, I tried reading the book, um, Afropolitan Projects. I started reading it. And um, personally, from my viewpoint as a Ghanaian who naturalized and lives in Europe now, I kind of feel like this is hitting home for me so far from what I've hit, um, read because um, I, I identify so much. But then I would want to hear from you and I would want the audience to hear from you. What's the book about? Just a brief summary. Yeah, no, I'm glad to hear that um, it resonates uh, in a large part. The book was written to kind of put language to certain experiences that 
uh, Africans today are uh, having and to really kind of think about it from the perspective of Ghanaians um, because often what happens when we talk about Africans um, not just within scholarly frameworks but in everyday life is that we all get flattened out so it doesn't matter whether you're from Kenya or Egypt or Ghana or Sierra Leone, you're an African, which holds meaning for a lot of us as Africans. And also the specificities of our country contexts, our ethnic contexts also hold meaning for us. But I decided to write this book um, because I myself migrated to the US in 2002. And when I moved to Texas, I was surprised. I'd been living in Accra in Ghana and you know I lived a, a pretty cosmopolitan life for a 15 year old. Um, and so I was really shocked to meet young people like myself who were so ignorant about where I came from when I knew so much about where they came from. And as I grew up, when I went to college, uh, when I started working, I realized that perhaps things were changing. Folks were beginning to understand Africans differently. And I was interested in what that meant. So there were these, rather than kind of like talking about Africans as these abject subjects, this kind of like pathology, which remained, right? So we remember when um, the Ebola um, pandemic was happening and Africans were once again uh, reinscribed as diseased people, for example. Uh, these things persist, they even persist today, but there was also something else happening. There was a kind of uh, a perhaps more generous discussion and um, yeah, there was a more generous conversation about who Africans were and I was interested to know how Africans ourselves were experiencing that and shaping that conversation. And so I decided to spend some time with a community of Ghanaians as a case study through which to understand what their experiences were of what it means to be an African in the world today, what being Ghanaian meant to them, and what it meant to live in the U.S. As I wrapped up that part of the project, I realized that it was incomplete without engaging with Ghanaians living in Ghana as well. And because I was conducting what's called an urban ethnography, it made sense to go to another city. I had been doing the research in Houston, Texas, which at the time, I don't know the, the demographics now, but at the time, Houston was the fourth largest U.S. city. And it had a very large immig immigrant population. And part of that immigrant population was a very large Nigerian population, so that Houston was called Little Lagos. Uh, and yet I, I focus on Ghanaians and I can talk more about that later on. But the story seemed incomplete without returning to Accra to talk with folks in Ghana, in another cosmopolitan city, to see what also being African meant to them and what being Ghanaian meant to them in that context as well. So that was the genesis of the book, was this curiosity. I titled it Afropolitan Projects because uh, at the time, when I was wrapping up the work in Houston, Blitz, Blitz's album Afropolitan Dreams had just come out. And even though Tay Selassie's essay had come out about seven years prior to that, uh, the term hadn't taken on as much prominence. But 
2015, more and more people were starting to be familiar with the term. And I'm a sociologist by training. I was really interested in projects as a kind of work. So what does it mean to do this work of being an Afropolitan? And so a lot of the book kind of examines the various cultural politics, the various kinds of strategies and endeavors, the work that folks engage to position themselves as Afropolitans. Okay, so um, I guess in other words, then the Afropolitans are what we would refer to as diasporans that checks out right okay in initially that's how the term um might be taken up so initially Mm -hmm. uh, for example when when selassie writes her essay she's talking about afropolitans as people who are either born or raised in the west but have strong ties to some place on the african continent now actually part of the argument that i make is that we can understand afropolitan through three axes First, as an identity, Uh, so it's who you are, how you identify, how you move through the world, etc. Second, as an aesthetic, so we can talk about Afropolitan fashions, and I'm sure you may, some of your listeners as well, may be familiar with uh, different kinds of aesthetics that they would identify as Afropolitan. And third, as a politic, and that politic is about telling a particular narrative about about who Africans are, kind of resisting, kind of kind of reproducing this Africa rising uh, narrative, but with a strongly aesthetic lens. So that's one one element of it. Another element of it is that I talk about Afropolitan uh, as a way to also think about Africa as a site of Black diaspora. So typically when we talk about Black diaspora, um, it's somewhere else. It's not on the African continent. It's uh, maybe in the U.S. primarily because of kind of U.S. uh, cultural hegemony. Uh, If you look at uh, the Black British sociologist Paul Gilroy's work, you might think about Black diaspora. Well, he writes about Black diaspora as he's kind of like, he writes about the Black Atlantic as a primary feature of Black diaspora. What happens in those kinds of conversations is that Africa disappears. But for Afropolitans, Africa was really important, at least the Ghanaian Afropolitans with whom I engage for this work, but I think it, it might be true for many others as well. Some place on the African continent was really important to them as a real material site. And when I was in Accra, I increasingly saw how Accra itself is a site of Black diaspora. So we know that Accra is not just a place where Ghanaians live. Um, People from all over the world are in Accra. It's very cosmopolitan in that regard. And Black people from all over the world, Black people from the African continent are also there. And they are engaged in a cultural politic that positions the city as what some might call international or world class. And so when we think about that kind of politic happening there, which also happens in Johannesburg, in Nairobi, In Lagos, we see how particular kinds of diasporic black politics are also happening on the African continent. And from that perspective, Afropolitan cannot just be reduced to so-called diasporans, although they are certainly a feature of it, but also to folks who live on the African continent engaging in this diasporic black politic as well. 
Okay. Um, one thing I found um interesting, I guess, or well, one thing I have also observed myself within my uh Ghanaian immediate Ghanaian community back uh in Netherlands is the the strong presence of um Christianity and its influence in just everything that's um done by the community there and then also back home in Ghana. Um I was just going to ask them that is what's it going to take for us to should I say decouple ourselves from that whole religion bit and then um looking at just the integration of like how developments and or contribution from people afropolitans or should I say people living abroad um influences what goes on back home if you get my line of questioning so you're asking how how to decouple the kind of strong Christian background of Ghanaians in particular from mm-hmm. the Afropolitan politics? Yes. Well, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'll tell you what I found <laughs> in my research. Um, okay. So one of the things that I did not intend to um, study religion of any kind or Christianity in particular. Mm-hmm. However, um, as, a, as a qualitative researcher, one of the things that is really important to pay attention to is what's happening on the ground, right? You can't just show up and impose your views on the situation, but my, I see my job as, um, as an ethnographer, I see my job as observing what's going on Uh, and trying to make sense of it through different theoretical paradigms. And I also see my job as helping to make sense, helping to kind of broadly, structurally understand what what my interlocutors are saying, how they're making sense of the world that they live in. So when I was in Houston, I was really struck by the dominance and persistence of Christianity uh, within the community. They prayed at almost everything. They prayed at ethnic association meetings, they prayed at community picnics, they prayed at weddings and funerals and outdoorings and, you know, they were always praying. Um, but the thing that really kind of helped me see something else that was happening with Christianity was when on a, at a July 4th US independence celebration, The pastor prayed, and in his prayer, he called Abraham Lincoln and George Washington forefathers of the other Ghanaians at that that event. And that struck me, and it helped me begin to understand Christianity not just as uh, a religion, but also as a cultural politic, right? So it wasn't just, oh, we're praying because we believe in Jesus, but we're praying uh, because it helps us to be American as well. It allows us to be part of this shared lineage. And in my conversations and in my in-depth interviews with folks in Houston, um, again, I wasn't asking this question, but it kept coming up. Uh, Being Ghanaian means being Christian, or like there are really not any Muslims here, and all of these sorts of things. And I thought, well, what does being Ghanaian mean to being Christian? What is that? You know, um, 
At independence, only 40% of Ghanaians were Christians. So at the founding of the new nation, less of half the population was Christian. And yet, there's this kind of strong affinity uh, and assumption that to be Ghanaian means to be Christian. And in my own conversations with my mother, you know, I would talk to my mother about her family's history and, and these sorts of things. And one of the things she said, which I, you know, I find reproduced in history books um, and anthropology studies, is the role that Christianity played in shaping the identity of those people who would become Ghanaians. And that role had to do with giving folks access to Western education, giving folks access to particular kinds of commerce and uplift, and this kind of idea that to be Christian was to be a modern subject. And because Africa is not a site of modernity within these kinds of um, racist epistemologies, right? Africa is a backwardly backward land. Africa is a place where people don't know nothing from nothing, and they do these bush religions and that sort of thing. Christianity is not just about Christianity, but Christianity is about an entry into modernity. It's about uh, belonging. It's about really kind of taking a stance in a nation amongst nations. So Christian nationalism then is um, becomes a part of a particular kind of Afropolitan project. Now, in the book, I like think about various different kinds of Afropolitan projects because they don't all look the same. They all have a kind of overarching goal of articulating Africans and Africa as a site of modernity and as a and kind of rejecting that that narrative of abject and aberration, objection and aberration. But within what I call the Christian America Afropolitan Project, uh, what I was really finding, focusing on what Ghanaian immigrants were doing in the U.S., was that it helped them to position themselves as also belonging within what they understood as Christian America. Now, scholars of Christian America highlight how it is uh, an incredibly racist um, and heteropatriarchal site. Christian America is not uh, something necessarily to be applauded. Uh, when scholars think about what Christianity has meant within the political landscape of the U.S., we might think about the recent book by um, religion scholar Anthea Butler called White Evangelical Racism. Um, we might think about uh, a more popular example of Billy Graham and his missionary work in Africa and the kind of um, Pentecostalism and what that did. And so there's that happening on this front, but then it also helps us make sense of what Christianity is doing in Ghana, which is part of what I understand as a colonial legacy. And so in that regard, we might think about the current bill in Parliament um, that is seeking to criminalize queer people and allies, which does two things, right? It says we're doing this because we're Christians, and then they pull in Muslims as a kind of like, oh, look, these other religious people like agree too, but we know that Muslims, for example, hold a marginal position within Ghanaian political imagination and landscape. And um, it says this is Ghanaian culture. Now, again, the nation is something like 65 years old, so like, what are you actually talking about? It's also a nation made up of many different nations, the Akan, the, the Asante, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so in, in, in terms of asking how to decouple Christianity from Afropolitan projects, I don't have an answer to that. Um, I think that there are activists who are doing that work. There are cultural practitioners who are thinking seriously about it. But what my book allows us to see is what is going on. It's, it offers an analysis of the problem. Um, and 
I think that there, you know, other researchers or even cultural workers who can kind of take that as a source to then kind of figure out how they might make adjustments to it. Yeah. Okay. Um, I did ask about that mainly because yes, I do realize how religion influences like the general politics of the land, as she said, um, and. Just overall, what would you want people to take away after reading the book? What was the impact you would want your book to have as we wrap up? Yeah, so I, I don't... <laughs> one of the things that I am really hesitant, hesitant to do as an author is to tell people how to read my book. <laughs> um, and, and it's because I don't... I think folks have such expansive imagination and like, you know interesting ways of of making sense of different things i think having written the book i've told you how i'm interpreting it and i've put it in conversation with particular theoretical paradigms you know i consider myself a post-colonial researcher a transnational feminist a queer uh, african scholar and so those are the um intellectual frameworks with which i come to assessing this Methodologically, uh, you know, my book is empirically grounded, so it means that I spend time in community, chatting with people, um, and I hope that I represented what they said well and, and try to make sense of it within a broader framework. And so, if, if I were to say something about what I hope readers will take from it, I hope that the book inspires uh, one of the epigraphs of the book is in the Dinkras symbol, which means that um, if you do a good thing, you receive a push. It's encouragement for doing good work. Um, I really wanted to elevate the progressive cultural politics that are in Afropolitan projects to really kind of highlight the good work of folks who are doing that. Um, one of the orgs that I, I write about is Drama Queens uh, in Ghana, who, which is a, um, a, a Pan-African feminist org that does a lot of education in different contexts. I really wanted to elevate that and hope that it would inspire other Ghanaians and other Africans to engage into, in that kind of politics. I hope that for folks who are maybe a bit ambivalent about the potential of this, they might find ways of um, engaging a more progressive politics and might challenge those more uh, regressive and oppressive avenues that Afropolitan projects engage. So yeah, I said I don't want to tell people how to read my book, but I, I, do, I do hope that it inspires folks. And for other researchers, I hope that it inspires them, you know, that gives them some courage to to do this scholarship differently, uh, to know that we don't have to kind of stay in the same paths that have been carved out for us that kind of reproduce Africa as alien or whatever. Like I, I, I stand on the shoulders of giants when I write this book. I, they're um, anti-colonial scholars that help me frame my work and I hope that this book also continues in that legacy for researchers after me. Okay. Um, Kes, would you have any question? Yes, I would like to backtrack a little actually. So you had mentioned um, mm -hmm. that with the research, you focus primarily on Ghanaians. And I just wanted to know, do you think you would have had different results if you had um, interviewed or spoken to more um, other people, people from other countries 
other African countries. In my mind, Africans, we are one in that sense, like of um, experiences and stuff like that. I feel like we are one. So I'm just curious to know if you think that um, the results would have been different in some sense. Yeah, um, so you're asking me to answer a counterfactual. Um, so I, I think that there would be some similarities, right? So, for example, um, I don't know what the role of Christianity is in Nigeria, right? So maybe mm. if I had done, and I, I chose Ghana intentionally, and I explain why in the book, and I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that. One of the things I really despise is when researchers have some vague understanding of the people, and they usually it's usually white researchers who do this to um, people of color, right? And then they go and then they, like, misunderstand something, and then they tell you, oh, this is how these people understand the thing. So when I began this study, maybe it made sense. Someone might have said, oh, why didn't you just do this with Nigerians? If you're in Houston, it's Little Lagos. I don't speak Igbo, I don't speak Yoruba, I don't speak Hausa, right? Within these Ghanaian communities, they were mostly speaking their own languages, right? Like, yeah, they'll speak English, but then I'll be here and you're speaking Ga and you're speaking a Kriapim tree or whatever. And I know like three words of Ewe. So like, at least I got what was happening. <laughs> um, and I understood the cultural context and the cultural frameworks. And so I... Because I'm Ghanaian myself, I thought, you know what, I have a better grasp of what's happening and I can do this in a more ethical way than if I were to, you know, do this with Nigerians or Kenyans or something. That said, so many of us came up under British colonialism, which is our legacy. And so if that is uh, inheritance, then there are ways in which that inheritance looks similar in different places. I do think the book will resonate for a Kenyan reading it. I do think the book will resonate for someone from Tanzania, for someone from um, from Nigeria, etc. But I think there will also be specific things that look different. For example, the class, um, which we didn't talk much about, but the the folks I talked to are class privileged, right? These are not these are not like working class and poor Ghanaians that I'm talking to. They too have a particular experience. That class basis is important to think about. So the the book has a particular trait a lens that I think will resonate for other people who might occupy that particular lens in different countries. But even a working class Ghanaian would be like this is not part of my Ghanaian experience, right? They might have, they might see it, they might, even even elements of it might resonate, but it would be disingenuous to say that this would, would uh, adequately uh, reflect their Ghanaian experience. And, and so I think that's also an important um, element of intellectual honesty and humility, is to know what the limits of the work are, uh, limits are not necessarily a bad thing. It just helps us to know what the scope is. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, it does. Thank you so much. But also, where can we find their book? Okay, so you can find the book wherever books are sold. Uh, it's on Amazon. Um, I am. I, I actually, I'll just say it here, uh, which is that I'm planning to go to Ghana in June, and I'm hoping to do a book launch event while I'm there. So. 
that means I'll bring copies of the book with me for people in Ghana um, and you know I'll try to advertise that broadly it'll be limited because I'm not bringing a suitcase full of books <laughs> but uh, you could also if you are in Ghana you could probably pre-order it through um, video books uh, and, and they'll be able to get you a copy as well thank, thank you. you so much and um, everyone should really just grab a copy and read it because it's very interesting um, conversation in there or well interesting research in the no conversations but um thanks awesome. Ingmar again and so um hopefully we'll chat Thank again on the show or somewhere else um or we'll be at the launch in june when you're around so see you around and have a good evening yeah so that's it for today guys and thanks for listening uh check out the gcr network uh, listen to gcr.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at gcrtor. We will be having our next Treat Yourself event soon. Um, details will be shared on our socials, so keep your eyes peeled for that. And it's been a wrap, guys. Bye. Bye, guys. This has been a Gold Coast Reports production. Catch up on episodes and discover more shows from our network on listen to gcr.com.